I just want to add my encouragement regarding uh, the Go offering especially, but all this uh, happening uh, this Christmas. A lot of things converged at once, the Brazil team being out, uh, the Go offerings, Christmas giving tree, all these things happening, and we're just about at the deadline for them, so let's follow through and really step up and uh, do what we should be doing. I'm excited especially about that Go offering as we're sending out new missionaries, and what a perfect time at Christmas just to say, you know what, we're not going to spend all the money on trading gifts with ourselves. Let's uh, give the things that really matter to get those missionaries out on the field and uh, get them serving and make that a great Christmas gift uh, to God. Let's take a minute to pray here. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It's good for us. You are good to us and that you always meet us when we we come and and, uh, look into your word, when we listen to it, when we study it. Father, we're ready, but, uh, but our readiness sometimes, Father, means we need to to also uh, not just open our minds here, but open our hearts. So, Father, do help us to concentrate, to put the energy into to learning and also to applying. And, Father, as we apply then, we, uh, we take this moment to say, yes, Lord, we will listen deeply, not just academically, but, Lord, we want our defenses to go down. We want you to speak past uh, any barriers or distractions that are in our way to let us know how to apply your word to our life today, what it will mean to us. We look forward to it. We believe in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So uh, one of our presidents was John Quincy Adams. He was actually the sixth president, if I've got that right. Uh, In in Corvallis, he didn't get his own street because his dad, uh, John Adams, was president before him. So he had to share a street name uh, with his father instead of getting his own, as far as I know, unless there's a John Quincy Adams street around uh, somewhere. But John Quincy Adams... uh, Uh, was an interesting man. Here's what he said about himself. Here's what he wrote in his diary once. He said, I am 45 years old. Two-thirds of a long life have passed, and I've done nothing to distinguish it by usefulness to my country and to mankind. Passions, indolence, weakness, infirmities have sometimes made me swerve from my better knowledge of right and almost constantly paralyzed my efforts of good. My whole life has been a succession of disappointments, he said. I can scarcely recollect a single instance of success in anything I ever undertook. But as one of his biographers wrote, and listen, John Quincy Adams, until his death at 80 in the Capitol, held more important offices and participated in more important events than anyone in the history of our nation. As minister to the Hague, emissary to England, minister to Prussia, state senator, United States senator, minister to Russia, head of the American mission to negotiate peace with England, minister to England, secretary of state, president of the United States, and member of the House of Representatives. He figured in one capacity or another in the American Revolution, the War of 1812, the prelude to the Civil War. Among his acquaintances and colleagues with whom he worked, He worked, who marched across the pages of his diary, are Samuel Adams, John Hancock, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, Lafayette, John Jay, James Madison, James Monroe, John Marshall, Henry Clay, Andrew Jackson, Thomas Hart Benton, John Tyler, John C. Calhoun, Daniel Webster, Abraham Lincoln, James Buchanan, William Lloyd Garrison, Andrew Johnson, Jefferson Davis, and the author says, many others. Who do you think had the right perspective on his life? John Adams, John Quincy Adams, or someone else? Adams obviously didn't have a very uh, objective view of himself, did he? He thought of himself as being quite a loser when he really wasn't. 
You know, oftentimes uh, people of the world consider Christians to be losers. But what's worse is that oftentimes uh, Christians themselves consider themselves as a people to be losers, the defeated. That belief oftentimes affects greatly the practice of their faith, their ability to serve God, their ability even to stay true to God. This morning, we're going to learn a little bit about the perspective we need to have on ourselves as believers and how that how getting that right perspective will affect us in a positive way while keeping that negative uh, wrong perspective will lead us the wrong way. When last we left off, we were in the book of First Peter, chapter three. That's where we are today. Chapter three, beginning at verse 18. You want to get there in your Bibles. And in 1 Peter, remember, 1 Peter is a great don't back down book. And don't back down is our, our theme for this year. That we need to be don't back down disciples because that's what Jesus taught us. You know, that when you encounter the challenges, the trials, the, uh, the obstacles in the world, that you, you don't back down. We've been learning the reasons why here in 1 Peter. One of the things we, uh, we learned last week as we, as we left off, we learned about an uncomfortable reality that Peter brought up. He said, hey, Christians, in case you haven't noticed it yet, <laughs> you're going you're gonna to be living a great life for God. You're going to be living and pursuing righteousness. You're going to be doing all the right things in life and following God. And you know what? You're going to suffer for it. There are going to be people who come against you. There will be those who dislike you. There will be those who stand against you, who become your opponents, some who will persecute you, some who will do whatever they can to get in your way. You're going to have those moments. And, and when that happens, you're going to be discouraged and you're going to be confused and you're not going to know what's going on because you're thinking, what is happening here? I'm in my right relationship with God. I'm doing things that I should be doing. I'm pursuing the life I should pursue. How come things are going so badly? Peter begins to address that and he begins to give an encouragement uh, by saying, look, you just have to recognize this is the reality. The reality is that Christ suffered and and you are destined to share in his sufferings. But Peter gave gave some great advice last week. He said, basically, here's how you need to handle it. He said, first of all, consider yourself blessed because there's blessing to be had in all this. Second of all, he said, put away your panic because there really is no reason for you to be panicking here. God is is with you in this. And then he said, make sure that that as you encounter this, this trial, these challenges, that you put Christ first this is going to there's going to be a point when you're suffering for doing good and you may start saying maybe this isn't worth it i should just put myself first but he says no in those times that's when you need to turn around and go no wait christ first because that is the right response and that is the wisest response and the best response and then peter gave some great advice last week we saw about uh what to do what's what's one of the best things to do first and what he said was uh get ready to be a powerful witness for jesus because Because in these situations, those doors open up and you can be ready to do something really great. Peter uh, finished off there in verse 17 with just a just kind of a reminder. It's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. And then he goes on and and he says he says this. He adds this on. Verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, 
when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. If you read that through the first time and you felt like, wow, this passage is kind of going all over the map here. Well, it is actually in a, in a way, because Peter actually starts as, a, as he's uh, as he's writing uh, and he he writes a, a, a point and then he he goes into a slight digression and then he comes back to it at the end of this little section here. And so uh, so what we want to want to make sure we, we know here is that that we're looking for the main point. And it's inevitable when we read this passage that that we get focused more on the middle section, which is his bit of a digression, than we do on his main points. And for that reason, I just want to address that right now and say two things about it, uh, because there are some things in here that, that people have been confused on, and, uh, and it's led to some bad teaching in, in churches sometimes and some misunderstandings. We want to clarify that without going into detail and just say, okay, here are the issues, here's this middle section, there's, there's good, good messages to be had in it, but let's not get bogged down in it this morning. And so, so two matters to just address right up front and, uh, and, and set aside uh, are this. That, that first of all, there's been some controversy uh, in, in Christian teaching and, and some misunderstandings based on uh, verses 19 and 20 here, where Peter, talking about Jesus after his crucifixion, says he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were disobedient. Disobedient. Now, literally through the centuries, a lot of different interpretations have come up as to what this means. And uh, and just, you know, some of the, the basics, the ones that have lasted the longest have been this, that, that this discussion of, of Jesus going to talk to spirits in prison. Uh, what are those spirits or who are they? And, and some of the main, you know, uh, uh, answers to that question have been, well, those were humans alive at the time of Noah, some of people said, uh, some people have said. And others have said, no, those are those are humans who have been alive uh, with at the time of the apostles. And others have said, no, what they're really focusing on there or or what Peter was really focusing on were the spirits of dead humans. And and the idea of the spirits of dead humans kind of took off uh, that Jesus went and visited them. And some have said that, that what Jesus did was was that he made a descent into hell. And oftentimes it's said that that he made this descent into hell between his his uh, death and his resurrection. He made this descent into hell, and, and it's often said that, that when he did that, he went and made a, a, a proclamation. And you may have heard somebody say, well, what he did was he went and he made a proclamation of the gospel to these dead, these dead spirits, uh, you know, the spirits of dead humans who were there. Uh, and, and oftentimes it's been said he, he gave them a chance for salvation, that you know, they, they rejected him on earth, but he went down and he preached the good news and and uh, so now they had an opportunity to be, to be saved. Now, in saying all that, I'm really only telling you like one one pathway. Uh, different interpreters have gone different directions on this and uh, various a lot of variations on it. Let me just say this about about this. And this is one thing you can say, OK, I heard about it. I know what what basically the idea is. I can go go study it further if I want. Well, I'll just say this careful study of the scriptures here. Uh, will tell us that, that a lot of what I just told you, these interpretations are, are very untrue and not acceptable. Uh, a very careful study will tell us that the spirits 
uh, Peter spoke of here. I believe it very directly. Scripture will give us the indication. Those are, are what are called sometimes in Scripture evil spirits, also known as fallen angels who are, are now imprisoned and awaiting judgment. I think the, the New Testament backs that up in Second Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, and Jude chapter 6, where these spirits who are imprisoned are, are, are mentioned. Now, I think the evidence also is very clear that the proclamation that Jesus made here um, was a proclamation not of the good news, but a proclamation of his victory. His victory and triumph over evil and over death that he made to these angels who imprisoned and uh, whose imprisonment was sealed. Now, you can take a different view on that, but you're going to have to dig deeply and come up with some, some uh, evidence to support your side. Just want you to know that's an issue. And you shouldn't be bogged down by it. But if you hear someone, you know, preaching this doctrine of Jesus going to hell and, you know, preaching the good news to people in prison, just go, wait a minute, that one I, I got to look more into. So we'll set that one aside. We'll go, OK, well, that's a little thing in here that I don't want to get bogged down in this morning. The other one is, is where Peter says in here, baptism now saves you. Baptism now saves you. Some have read this and said that it means that, that baptism, water baptism is the is the key to your salvation. And, and so you just need to be baptized. doesn't matter if you're a little tiny baby or if you're, you know, a, a grown adult or you're at the, the ending years of your life. Just just make sure you get baptized. Get get some holy man to put some water on you because then you'll be right with God. It's kind of been one viewpoint. Another viewpoint has been this. No, the Bible says you need to put your faith in Jesus. And so that's that's the way you get salvation. But by the way, if you don't also get baptized, you're not really saved. You can put your faith in Jesus, but if you didn't get that, that holy water on you, then you're toast. You know, you're done. And, and you got to know that, that both of those viewpoints are, are absolutely wrong. Now, the, the teaching of, of Scripture is very clear that we are, are saved. Uh, we're saved. Our salvation comes by grace through faith, not through baptism or any other ritual or any other work. Christ does command his followers to be baptized and we need to know that to not be baptized is to disobey God. It's to fail to make that public proclamation of our faith that God wants us to make. So baptism is important. It's an important symbol of our faith in Jesus and our following of Jesus. It's a sign of the inner union that we've come to have spiritually with Jesus Christ that came by our faith in him. It's a sign of the, of the, the new life we have, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us. But the act of baptism itself doesn't save us. You may need to go away and study more of that if you've, if you've heard otherwise. But notice here, by the way, Peter even acknowledges this uh, in, in verse 21 where he says, Baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for or from a good conscience. It's not the water baptism that leads to the washing away of your, your sins and your guilt for your sins, but rather it's your inner response to God. Even that, this uh, verse here, a lot of scholars take different views on the meaning, but the bottom line is that what... What Peter's really saying is, look, when, when the Holy Spirit comes and convicts you of your sin and calls you to repentance and to faith in God, then, then you need to make that response positively. And when you do, that's when God forgives your sin based on what's going on in your heart. He gives you those salvation benefits. Our positive inner response is expressed then outwardly in our baptism. Now, that's what Peter means here. And, uh, and we just can, can maybe leave it at that. Uh, more could be said, but I'm just going to stop right there. But just understand, baptism isn't what saves you, but rather the, the genuine faith. Christians take some different viewpoints on these passages. What we need to do is not get bogged down in the middle here, wrestling over these difficult words to understand, 
and then miss really the main point of what Peter was getting at in this section. Because remember, he's just finished the section where he said, here's the uncomfortable reality. You will be doing good. You will be living a righteous life and you may still suffer for it. You may still suffer for it. Now, what then is his main point in this next section then? Well, underlying it, remember, is this. That this suffering is normal that you're going to experience. It's distinctly Christian. It, it comes to you because of your connection with Christ. Because Christ himself led the way in it. And, and you as his followers, you're destined to share in, in this kind of suffering. So don't be surprised by it or confused by it. But as Peter moves on here, beginning at verse 18, his main point really becomes this. Christians, remember, you may be a suffering people, but you're not a defeated people. You may be a suffering people, but you're not a defeated people. Rather, you are a people victorious. The fact that you are a suffering people does not mean that you're losers destined to always lose. It does not mean that you are basically cannon fodder in the human and spiritual battles between good and evil. Just sort of these folks that God leaves on earth to be annihilated. You're not left here for that purpose. And what you do and how you live now uh, is meaningful, actually. You are not irrelevant. You are not meaningless. You are not valueless just because you're here suffering now. It does not mean that, that you will never experience victories. The fact that you're suffering does not mean that you will never experience victories here or that if you do, they're few and far between. What, what you need to understand is you're not a defeated group or defeated individuals. Think about this, Peter is saying, just as Christ suffered and appeared to be defeated but was not, but was in fact more victorious than anyone could have imagined, so it is really with you now too, and it will be forever. For just as you have been destined to suffer with Christ, you've also been destined to share in his victories. And those victories are already beginning to be yours because of what Christ has already accomplished. And what, it, what has he already accomplished for you? Well, that's what Peter's getting at in verse 18. He's giving them a reminder. Verse 18 uh, says what? Consider yourself in this way. Consider Christ in this way. Christ died for sins. What did Christ do for you? Christ died for sins. Whose sins did he die for? His sins? No, your sins. Your sins. He died to pay the penalty due for sins. He took the punishment for it. He suffered uh, death to make atonement for sins. First John chapter four. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved uh, uh, us first. And he gave his son a pro- as a propitiation, a satisfaction for our sins. Sin needed to be paid for. Christ made the payment. And he did it for us. He did it. He died, it says there in verse 18, the just for the unjust, the just for the unjust. If you have NIV, it says the righteous for the unrighteous, which was which he's the righteous. We're the unrighteous. He was sinless. We are sinful. He suffered death to to be a substitute for us. His death was vicarious. He took our place. He didn't deserve to die. He didn't even have to help us, but he chose to. He volunteered to die in our place. The one who deserved no suffering bore our suffering that we deserved. He took what was due us on himself. And in doing so, he set in motion a great transfer. 
where God would take the positional righteousness of Jesus and place it on us and say, I look at you as righteous now, even though you committed unrighteousness. Because Jesus stepped in and paid your price. Second Corinthians 5.21 He, God the Father, made Him, Christ the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. What we deserved was put on Christ. And what Christ had, God gave to us. The declaration of righteousness through Christ. When He did this, we're told that God took care of the matter entirely. We should say Christ took, matter of the, the, took care of the matter entirely because when he made this sacrifice, it, verse 18 says he did it once for all. He did it once for all. He did this because of who, uh, or he was able to do this once for all because of who he is. The Son of God. It's the Son of God. He made the perfect sacrifice. He made a sacrifice of, of huge value. No one else could have, could have made this sacrifice and have it been so perfect and so valuable. But he, the Son of God, made it by giving up himself. And when he did that, he accomplished what, what no one else could actually do. He made a sacrifice that was totally sufficient to cover all our sins, all of our sins. For any human who would receive it would cover all sins for all time. So efficacious was his sacrifice that it's absolutely complete. He left nothing uncovered by the sacrifice he made. So that there's, if there's nothing in his sacrifice that falls short of in any way providing for us what we needed to be forgiven. There's never a need for the sacrifice to be repeated, the scripture tells us, to make up for anything past, present, or future. His sacrifice was so valuable that he covered it all. And so the matter of our sin is settled for finality when we come and receive this gift of forgiveness. And why did he make this sacrifice? So that he might bring us to God. So that he might bring us to God. That is to restore our relationship with God. A relationship which was broken because of our sin. It was by our sin, the scriptures tell us, that we became actually alienated from God. Even enemies of God. Did you know that? That as as an unforgiven human being, That God looks upon you as as an enemy? That's what the scripture tells us. Our fellowship with God was broken by our sin. Our spiritual life with God ceased. We became cut off from God. Our sin became an excluding barrier between us and God. We may have wanted to get back to God, but we never could because of that sin barrier between us and him. But Christ suffered and died, died to remove that barrier, to secure for us reconciliation with God, to restore our relationship with God the Father. All of which means that if we have responded to God's call to return to him in repentance and faith, then we get all the benefits, all the benefits of what he did for us, which we won't go into in, in detail in length this morning. But, but what we need to understand, especially in regard to what Peter is, is saying, is this. That one of the huge benefits that we got from the sacrifice of Christ was this peace with God. We have peace with God, total peace. Romans 5 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just that we have the peace of God come upon us and make us feel peaceful. We actually have now peace with God. We were once enemies, but now but now that's not true anymore. Romans 8, 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All that separated us from God has been taken away. The bridge has been built. We are reconciled to God. Think about this. 
What Peter is, is reminding the, the readers that he first wrote to and all of us is this. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus, because of the value of it, because of the benefits of it, we have been brought out from under judgment. We've been brought out from, uh, from uh, being unforgiven. We are now fully forgiven. Fully forgiven. We've been freed from the sentence of eternal separation from God. We've been brought back into life with God. We have a relationship now in which there is never a moment. Think about this. There's never a moment any longer in which there is not peace between God and us. There's not there's not ever a moment left when we're not looked upon by God, the father as his dearly loved children. Never, ever a moment. But not only do we have this peace with God, one of the things the scripture expresses is we have access now to God. Complete access to God in a way we didn't have before. We have unhindered access into his presence, his company, his fellowship, his help at all times. The Apostle Paul writes about this in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, where he's talking about Jews and Gentiles both sharing the same benefits of Jesus Christ now. And, And Paul says, you know what? It doesn't matter whether you came out of this Hebrew background where you knew about the one true God and you had the, the religious traditions and, and, you know, you still needed to be forgiven, or whether you were a Gentile who came out of the, you know, the most pagan background where you didn't know God and you were in the most vile uh, worship practices, you know, of pagans. Uh, it doesn't matter. When you came to Christ, you both got, here's what it says in, in Ephesians 2.18, uh, you both got access through him. Through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Overlooked concept among Christians often is that I have access to God now. Which is why you read, for instance, in, in the book of uh, Hebrews, where it says, because you have this access, don't you, don't you dare ever stay away from God thinking you don't belong there. But instead, remember, you've got this person who opened the door and just basically keeps the door open always saying, come on to the Father. Hebrews 4 says what? Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We can do that at any time because we have that absolute access to the Father. There's never a moment that our access to God with all its benefits is not available to us. Amazing, isn't it? When I was a, a younger child, my, my mother was the, the, uh, the police clerk for the, uh, for the chief of police in the little town where we lived. And, uh, and so I could, I could go into City Hall anytime. This wasn't quite Mayberry, but it wasn't far from it. So, so I could go like into City Hall at any time and just walk right past the receptionist of the desk and right, walk right past the mayor's office and the planning division and everything and just go right into the, the office of the chief of police. I had that access. I just walk in there and talk to my mom and the police chief would talk to me and, you know, we'd have some fun and then I'd, I'd leave and go away. But I could do that at any time because I had this access, you know, because my mom being there. And it's that kind of access that we have with God now. It's like, no, we're free to walk in, you know, and talk to God at any time. We're always in his presence. He's always willing to listen to us. Access. Never a moment we don't have that access. And and so what Peter is, is beginning to drive at here is he's just told the Christians, you know what, you're destined to participate in the sufferings of Christ is, don't forget that you're also destined to be part of the victories of Christ. Putting this together, 
Christians are people who have total peace with God. They have complete access to God. Now, objectively speaking, are are such people who have been freed from an earthly life of spiritual deadness and an eternal life of separation from God and hell, are, are those defeated people? Are those losers? Are such people whose relationships uh, with God are always secure, who at all times are cared for by God, who may go into God at any time to receive help? Are, are those people losers? Are they a part of a defeated group? Are, are such people whom God is constantly at work in with the Holy Spirit, transforming them to become more Christ-like, are those losers? Are they a defeated people? Are those whose future is, is eternally bright, Are those a defeated people? No way. Those are a victorious people because of what Christ has accomplished. Because of all he has done for us. We are part of the victorious people, not the defeated people. But Peter goes on here and and it says it's not just because of your salvation from sin, though, and the benefits of that that make you part of a victorious people. It's also this, that in Christ, you're also entirely connected closely connected to the one who right now rules over every power, every being, physical or spiritual, in the entire universe. That's what Peter is getting at as he starts here in verses 18 and 19, but as he continues on in verses 21 and 22 after his little digression. In verse 18, he writes this, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Peter puts out the reminder here. Jesus didn't just die for your sins and pay the price. He also rose from the grave. He also is the resurrected Christ. He is the one who conquered death. He's the one who conquered evil. The Christ you serve is the conquering Christ. Yes, he came as the suffering servant. He died that way, but he rose as the conquering Christ. Resurrected, glorified now. He's no longer limited by his physical mode of existence here on earth. Peter says here in verse 19, he went and he made uh, proclamation to the spirits who were now in prison. He proclaimed his victory over death, his triumph over evil. Peter has that little digression then in his, in, his, uh, in his writing, which is meant, by the way, as a word of encouragement. You get in there, you'll see it sometime. It was meant as a word of encouragement. But then he comes back to this whole thing after he gets done with that digression. He gets down to verse 22 where he's saying, and we're, we're saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's by the fact that he not only died, but he lived, that we have a living Lord who is able to bring this salvation to us. We're saved through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Hey, where is Christ right now? Well, he's in heaven. Peter's reminding us he's in heaven, but he's not there just taking a long vacation until the time of his return. Sometimes we kind of have that that picture, you know, from what we've heard or read in scripture and heard about with Jesus. You know, he had this great massive amount of work that he did on earth in in a very short amount of time. And then he died on the cross. He was resurrected. He ascended to heaven and he's coming back someday. And when he does, man, he's going to ramp everything back up to, you know, full time. Once again, he'll get back to business. But right now he's just sort of he's just there somewhere in heaven. 
But the scripture pictures him in an entirely different way that, yes, he's there in heaven, but he's there still fully in ministry. Ministry to us. One of the things the scripture says is that that he's there always making intercession for us. But here the emphasis is that he's at the right hand of God. What's the right hand of God? Well, it's the supreme place of privilege and sovereignty. In the ancient days when kings had a, had a right hand, a person sitting at their right hand, that place, that person was in a position of, of honor and authority. The Old Testament talks about this. In the Psalms, it pictures God having a, a seat at his right hand, a place of privilege and sovereignty, not just a position of honor. Well, this is the position that Christ occupies right now. He's taken up a new role, a new association with God the Father in governing the universe. That's what he's doing right now. He is Lord over all, participating in the governance of the universe. And he is over all beings in the universe and not just human beings, but all spiritual beings. Verse 11 here, the angels and uh, not verse 11, uh, verse 22, all the angels and authorities and and, uh, powers are mentioned. Uh, And it says that they are subjected to him now. Well, who are they? Well, those are what the scripture also calls the spiritual forces of evil. The fallen angels who serve under the leadership of Satan, who are the enemies of God and God's people, who are active in this universe, who exert their powerful influence uh, onto humans, who become helpers to evil humans, uh, who foment unrighteousness and sin, who come against the people of God, who bring about persecution. Well, all those beings, Peter says, are, are now subject to Jesus and to Jesus' control. He's the Lord over them all, now and forevermore. Book of Ephesians brings this out where it says that, that uh, God the Father, when he raised him from the dead, this is Ephesians 1, 20 through 22, when he raised him from the dead uh, and seated him at the right hand far above all heavenly places, when he did that, he gave him, uh, he seated him at the right hand far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. So Jesus took lordship of the church, but at the same time, he took lordship throughout the universe. And so the same Lord who is the Lord of our church is the Lord of of all the beings in the universe. And they are all subject to him right now. That being so, who are we in Christ? Who are we in Jesus Christ? We are those who have nothing to fear then, aren't we? We're those who have no reason to be discouraged or despair or to be hopeless because we're connected to Christ. Just as we share his sufferings, we share in his victory. We share in his victory right now because we belong to him. And through him, the Holy Spirit dwells within us. No evil spirit being can touch us unless we decide to allow it to be so. We're not subject to their rule over us. They cannot overcome us or control us. It says in the, uh, the book of First uh, John, chapter 4, You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them, these spirits, because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. That's why you read uh, in the book of James, it says, Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Well, you don't need to fear Satan. You should be alert. You should be aware of him. He's crafty. No need to fear him because you can resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Belonging to Jesus means then that also, as, as Jesus is Lord over the universe, it says in Romans 8, 28, what? That he's working all things together for good to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. That in your life right now, Jesus is working all things together for good. And, and when we're here on earth engaged in the spiritual battles that often happen in this earthly realm, then what does he do? He comes to our aid and he never leaves us on our own. Never, ever leaves us on our own. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. There it is. God is always with us. We're never outside of his love and his care. And not only that, he's watching over us in such a way that Whatever evil might come upon us, we know we will be vindicated in the end by God. That that's God's plan. That we will be vindicated. Second Thessalonians uh, chapter 1 uh, brings this out. For after all, it is only just, the Apostle Paul writes, for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that text uh, number there, Second Thessalonians. It was wrong in the first service. Somebody did a good job catching that in the second service. Second Thessalonians, in case I said first, it's Second Thessalonians. And here are the assurances. Paul's writing to people who were suffering persecution. And he said, you know what? You're going to be mistreated. You're going to be reviled. You're going to have all these problems. But don't worry. When all is said and done, there will be vindication for you. God will make it so. Just as Christ has overcome all, so we too through him will always be overcomers. Christ is carrying us through. Now, does that sound like you're a defeated people? No, you, you, you are a conquering people because you are conquering through Christ. And you will have victory. God will always carry you through. By the way, lots of different interpretations in that little middle digression. But certainly one of the points Peter seems to be making in that section is, is this very point. That God carries you through. He mentions in the days of Noah. Noah lived in a day when men were godless and evil. It appears that only Noah and his family over the long haul, stayed, stayed uh, truly true to God, righteous, pursuing righteousness. And, you know, for that, they lived a very hard life. Sometimes we have this picture that, you know, God told Noah to build an ark. He went out, he kind of had it done by the weekend. But the scripture says this, this went on for years. All the while, Noah's living under this pressure, this animosity, the, 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 the temptations. But you know what? God carried him through all of that, through those hard times. Judgment eventually fell, didn't it? It mentions the patience of God waited a long time. God waited, but eventually judgment fell. But, but God brought Noah and his family through victorious. Through the ark, he provided them a vehicle by which they would be saved. And, and then Peter goes on to say, and corresponding to that, baptism saves you, which we know not merely the act itself, but our faith expressed in the act. And what Peter was saying is, look, you've come into this relationship now through baptism. You're being carried through, too. He's 
You know, he's tying in the whole water scene and everything else, you know, the water perspectives like Noah. He's saying, you know what? Your faith in Christ, your walk with Christ has become the vehicle that, that carries you through the water as well. This is what God does. He brings victory to his people. Even if they have to suffer for a while, God provides the way. So, so what's the, the, the application here then that Peter's trying to get at? Hey, I just told you you're going you're to suffer because you're destined to suffer. And I've given you some, some information on some good ways to handle it. Here are some good responses when you get in this situation. But don't forget. Don't forget who you are in Jesus Christ. You're a victorious people because he's a victorious savior. And you're sharing in his victories. So then for us, we have no reason to think of ourselves as defeated people. We have no reason to live as defeated people when we encounter trials and tribulations in this world. When we encounter the inevitable opposition that will come to us from somewhere. When that happens, what should we do? Don't be depressed. Don't be discouraged. And for goodness sake, don't shrink back as if you are already defeated. Don't slink away with your tail between your legs. But rather, like Noah, soldier on. Leave the time of victory to God. He will bring it. He will bring you victories even, through the, even in the midst of the trials. He will eventually bring great victory for you in many ways. Soldier on. But do so with the right attitude. Don't just take the view, oh, I'm just here to endure it. Go ahead, hit me. Just go ahead. We also have no reason then to live as defeated people when it comes to matters of submission and obedience. Submission and obedience. Well, I don't know. I'm just defeated anyway. We're just people who have to suffer all the time. What's the big deal? Maybe I won't obey. What about matters of giving and serving? Oh, we're such, we're such defeated people. Couldn't possibly trust God to give or go out and serve Him in some way, could we? Because we're just defeated. No, you're not. You're victorious people. What about, what about showing love and kindness to people, being forgiveness and patient, keeping integrity and righteousness? Hey, are you being dragged down in these areas because your whole view of yourself is? I'm just part of the suffering people of God. We're just the people who take the hits. We never can really accomplish anything for God. We'll never be victorious in our ministries. We'll never make a difference with our neighbors. Because we're just defeated. No, you're not. Do you ever find yourself thinking or feeling that you're on the losing side? That you're helpless, that you're hopeless, that the forces of evil have the upper hand wherever you are, and that surely they're going to win? As you go into your family gatherings and your office parties and whatever else this next week, have you already determined in your, in your heart, God will never do anything here? I will never be able to make any difference here. I'm just part of the suffering people of God. No chance for victory in this place. No chance for God to do anything. No chance that person would ever come to know Jesus, especially through my life. Do you ever find yourself thinking that? Do you ever start thinking that that your losses are permanent losses? That things that have gone terribly bad have no way of being redeemed in any way as good? That God could not redeem them and bring good out of them in any way? Have you already determined that about some of the failures and defeats in your life? The battles you have lost, not the wars, but the battles you have lost? That those defeats can never be overturned? 
Have you already decided that nothing good can ever be retrieved from them? That there's no hope of you ever coming out of ahead in your own life? Coming out of the sins you once were, were trapped in, now you've been forgiven, but there's no hope of, of ever seeing things go the other way for you, that God would actually do something great in you and through you. Have you already decided that? You know, it's a decision we can easily, easily feel. I feel it sometimes. I, I look at myself sometimes, you know what, this is just, this is hopeless. This is a hopeless situation. What are we doing at that point? I'm part of the defeated people of God. All we do is suffer. Are we willing to change and say, you know what? Yes, we do suffer, but we suffer as a victorious people. You know, when those times come, we have a choice as to how we will respond. We can choose the the defeated view or the victorious view. God assures us that we are part of the victorious people, but will we take it to heart and respond to it? Peter's encouraging words here are basically don't back down. Don't back down. Instead, keep going for that victory. Don't believe the lies of the evil one that say all you're here for is to suffer. And by the way, that's all God's ever going to do for you here on this earth is let you suffer. Don't believe that lie of the evil one. God is at work. You're already victorious. He's just looking to make you more victorious. Just like when people looked at Jesus and said, man, we thought he was the Messiah. He sure looked like the Messiah. But look, they just nailed him to a cross and put him in a grave. Definitely defeat. No hope of victory. And then what happened? He rose from the grave. Do you have that view that, you know what, that pattern, God builds that pattern into our lives as well. Yes, we will suffer. Yes, there will be battles lost, but wars will be won through Jesus Christ. When basketball season started, I was reminded of, a, of an article that was in Sports Illustrated. It was just a little sidebar in Sports Illustrated uh, at the beginning of last March. And it was about a, a, a basketball team, a college basketball team here in the United States down in California, that, um, that had just broken its losing streak. And what made it significant was its losing streak was 310 games, 310 conference games straight that they had lost over a period of seven presidential terms. <laughs> During that uh, time period, they had 60 losses of 50 points or more. Not, once they lost a game by 98 points, their average, average margin of loss was, 30, was over 35 points a game. But they kept on playing. They broke their streak. It was a big, exciting thing. Now, now don't you think that, that there were people who just looked at that team and, and that even that team had to say, we're such losers. We're such losers during that whole time period. But you know what? They didn't let that, that losing define them because they knew that there was more to them than that. And more to them than even just basketball. Because you see, they're a Division three school. It's Caltech. Now, Caltech is like the MIT of the West Coast, in case you don't know. Sits right next to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory down in the Pasadena area, where they do things like figure out how to send rockets up to Mars that drop a robot down and then give us pictures of Mars all the way back. These are the guys that get PhDs in, in science and technology and and are doing things that most of us would never even dream about doing. They're also the guys who, because they put so much into this in this elite academic institution, that, they, that the basketball players do things like stay up all night working on, on a, a 13-hour midterm tests, take-home tests, and then right when they finish the 13 hours, go out and play their basketball games. And so they, they, they know, you know what, 
we don't always win these battles, but these, these losses we have, they don't define us as the defeated. Because there's more to us than that. And that's what our view has to be is, yes, we're losing some battles. There's some things that happen that aren't good. But they don't define us and, and tell us we're defeated people. It only becomes that way if we start believing that. Two of my sons made it home from, uh, from college yesterday for spring break. Different cars, different rides home. Brought friends in. Friends stayed overnight at our house. What's that? Winter break, Winter break sorry. That's why my wife's there in the corner. Winter break. They came home. And so their friends stayed over. Uh, two of my, my son Timothy's friends, Riley, who's his roommate, and Larissa, Riley's sister, in our house, were around the table eating pizza last night. And I look at Larissa's T-shirt, and it says, it says grieving on the front. Really cool-looking T-shirt with nice lettering, I think. It says grieving but not without hope. And I looked at that and I just kept wondering about it. And so finally I asked later on, I said, was that just a, like a T-shirt you found somewhere that you thought was kind of cool? Or, or was it something special? Because I know some of the background in their family. And, uh, and they said, no, it was actually something that we made ourselves. Riley and Larissa made these after the death of their brother. You see, they come from a really good Christian family, a fine home, but their older brother got into drugs And eventually he committed suicide. That just devastated the family. And in the midst of that, what were they going to hang on to? Are we always just the suffering people? Are we just going to let this kill us? No, we're grieving, but not without hope. Where'd you get that? They got it from the book of Lamentations of the Old Testament. We're grieving, but not without hope. And so now here they are. They're they're, they're moving on in their life and and they're doing great things for God. Riley showed us a short film he had made in the film school at the college they go to. Such an such a awesome film that talks about looking beyond the barriers that are right in front of you to see the reality beyond what's behind it. Amazing. Amazing. I was in a lobby recently where there was a place for, for a whiteboard where things could be written and stay up for a while. And someone had taken the time to write cowboy wisdom quotes on it. Cowboy wisdom, various quotes. And, and one of the quotes was this. Scars, scars are cowboy tattoos with better stories. Isn't that great? Think about this. Nothing against, nothing against tattoos or whatever we decide to put on our body. But you know what? Isn't it true, like, even the scars you got just for, like, Playing, you know, you still look at those scars and it's like, yeah, I remember that. That was worth it. That was, you know, I got this little round scar on my shin, you know, uh, that I've had since I was eight years old. But, but I can tell this great story about like playing hide and seek and running away from someone through the ivy, the ivy that was really tall, but there was a sprinkler head buried in it. And I ran right in the back of it and it split my shin right open, you know. And, and that's a that's a fun story to tell, even, you know. And I, and I had this dumb accident where an arrow punctured my eye, which is why I have this bad eye. You know, and, it's, and I, even though, it, you know, I, I wish it wasn't there, but it's a good story to tell, you know. And you can make up false stories about it, too, every once in a while, but <laughs> not really. But, but you see what I'm saying? I mean, wouldn't it be better to just choose and say, you know what? 
I'm going to take this thing, knowing that I'm victorious, I'm going to do whatever it takes, and I'm undoubtedly going to pick up some scars. But those scars are going to be like tattoos with great stories. Because I'm part of the victorious, not part of the defeated. And so I'm not giving in in faithfulness. I'm not going to back down on that faithfulness. I'm not going to back down on that obedience. I'm not going to back down when God says, trust me on this. When God says, step out in faith. When God says to me, love someone. When God says, don't give up on this person. When God says, don't give up on this situation. Because yes, we're the ones who suffer. We're destined for that, but we're also destined for victory as well. What will we do with it? What will you do with it today? Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we come in this moment and we, we want to walk out of here with this sense of being part of your victorious people. And Father, we just say right away, we're understanding in everything we read, it's not because we have made ourselves victorious, it's because you have made us victorious. And, and that makes all the difference because we know it's not dependent on us. We just have to be willing to follow you, to accept who we are and to walk with you. That's what we want to choose to do. Father, we find it difficult sometimes to do that. But please let us understand what Peter is bringing out here. That we can go into these areas of suffering and it's okay because Christ already died for us and he already made us victorious in this area of salvation, in this area of relationship with God. And and we, we now live and serve a victorious Lord who rules over the universe. Lord, just bring that home to our hearts and our minds. Father, even now we just pause to say, Lord, here here are some situations where we've declared defeat. We've assumed it. We've decided it's to be so. We've We've determined, Lord, that there's no hope for us in that situation. Lord, hear us even now as we, as we say those to you in the silence of our hearts. And I encourage you right now, if you've just been in that place, to say there's a circumstance, there's a situation, there's a person, whatever, just say, God, I just realized this morning, I've just taken the role of a sufferer, but not a victorious sufferer. God, I'm turning from that. And Heavenly Father, will you open our eyes this week, this month, this coming year, and keep our eyes open to recognize circumstances where we can be that one person who is the victorious Christian. Please give us that insight. Lord, let us always remember that you are the one carrying us through. We sing to you now in worship, Lord, in praise, in recognition of all this, but also, Lord, saying in our hearts, we believe it. We do this in Jesus' name. Amen.